0: cognitive dissonance isn't necessarily bad it's functional and it's productive at times we evolved to do it pretty well
1: welcome to the big self podcast we are a learning community for people at a career crossroads ready to rejoin their soul and their role we have long-form conversations about self-awareness relationships tapping into your inner genius and building sustainable habits
2: We are led by our questions, we're curious, we're storytellers, and the more we learn, the better we get. And there are people all around us who have done the work. We think they have a lot to say about how we can discern and activate our own purpose.
1: I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist and the founder of Big Self.
2: And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a media specialist. I write, research, and produce content across industries.
1: To learn more about how to join the tribe, go to shellyprevost.com slash society.
2: Let's get started. David Bell has a PhD from Emory University, a master's of divinity from Princeton, and he also has a BA from Samford. He's a senior lecturer at Georgia State University now in his 12th year. David Bell's research lies at the intersection of religious studies, the social sciences, and especially in the psychology of religion. He's doing all kinds of amazing types of research around moral identity, moral injury, reimagining the boundaries and treatment of PTSD and post deployment soldiers. He's conducting research in the psychology of fathering. It's amazing to have him on and have an opportunity to speak with him about uh, his take on big self. So your dissertation, David, was uh, it was it's, it sounds you know it's got the academic, um, jargon, it's, but it's, it's a fascinating field. So it's, it's, it's called religious identity, conceptualization and measurements of the religious self. Can it, can you make can, how does it apply? How can a listener, what are some key takeaways from your research that would be, um, just that you find fascinating that, uh, that could be compelling for a listener?
0: There's this idea that when we're constructing our identities, we go from childhood to adulthood, that some of us, go through some form of a crisis in which we rethink or renegotiate who we are in relationship to religious institutions and religious identity. Mm -hmm. For most people in the world, religiosity, some form of it, is a huge part of their identity. And, And then at some point during adolescence or adulthood, we tend to differentiate ourselves from whatever identity we had in childhood according to that religion we rethink it we renegotiate we redistinguish ourselves so it's a pretty common thing that most people do in all societies not just the west what's interesting is that uh for me religious identity the argument is uh, was that the identity is actually psychologically the basis of most religiosity and what i mean by that is uh, most people if they are confronted with evidence that doesn't support their belief system uh, they tend to just change you know, people sometimes change political beliefs or they change whatever kind of belief systems they have. But with with religion, the identity part of it gets so integrated into the person that they tend to not deconvert. They tend it tends to stick better. And so the argument of the dissertation was that religious identity may be the most formative or foundational part psychologically of our religious behavior and belief systems. Mm so it's it's actually like the identity part and what i mean by identity is uh the ways in which we conceive both unconsciously or implicitly and uh and consciously or explicitly our senses of self with that religion so like um if you ask me who i am i may tell you uh i'm a teacher who rides a bicycle but if you start to play uh to parse that out you may find out that my gender race economic status, educational status are all major components of my identity. Mm -hmm. Religiosity as one of those components tends to have an outsized influence on the other areas. And so ultimately I'd argue I really did study the meaning of life, which was (laughs) how is it that we make existential meaning of ourselves on this planet? Mm -hmm. And, uh, And for most people, that's some form of supernaturalism or religiosity.
1: So, uh I I I know enough, enough about Erickson to understand the stages and the crises. What um and I don't think he did talk very much about religious crises. I, I mean, I'm sure he did, but mm-hmm. I just I don't I don't know that he did. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what crisis led you to this work and discover and and you, as you alluded earlier to Really asking the questions, leaning into the questions. Like you just kept asking the questions. Is that right. just who you uh, are or is there a crisis that kind of catapulted you into the questions?
0: Curious, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, we never know how unusual we are compared to other <laughs> kids. All we have are our, own, are our own experiences. But at 13, I was obsessed with post-millennial uh, rapture theology, apocalyptic stuff from Hal Lindsay and all this other kind of stuff. <laughs> it was really weird.
1: I don't think most and 13-year-olds are wrapped up in that. Yeah. N- no, not so no, much.
0: No. <laughs> uh, I eventually uh, recovered and started riding my bicycle everywhere. <laughs> but when I got to college, uh, my uh, 8 a.m. Monday morning, first class, I had an Old Testament professor, uh, Dr. Karen Joins, who was uh, great, I think. And he looked at all of us, scoffed, dropped, uh, and told us his first line to the entire class was, Jesus was a bad Jew. (laughs) Whoa, (laughs) provocative. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. And obviously he was trying, and for listeners, what his point was, is he was wanting us to look at the life of a Messianic figure Mm -hmm. walking around a Maccabean time period who was Jewish who wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. In other words, to take a look at yep. who this beloved figure is in Christianity and a step outside of that box. And, and that's called biblical criticism. And mm-hmm. that kind of rocked my world that and finding out there's two creation stories that there's a hundred gospels that aren't in there, you know, all the other mm-hmm. stuff yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. turns out to be problematic to a fairly conservative belief system. Yes. Uh, by, the, by the time I was done with college, I, uh, uh would, would have placed myself more on a, the side of Sartre and Dostoevsky and, and others and existential philosophy, uh, with, with deep burning questions of reality. Mm.
2: Well, actually that's uh, somewhat, it's interesting because it's kind of against the grain of the very thing that you're saying your dissertation, uh, arrived at that. And I, you know, and I, I know by the way that, um, you know, you were in, when I first met you, you really were into Foucault. You were into some, de- the deconstruction, yeah. the dismantling of of beliefs and belief structures. But then something did seem to shift in your thinking. Uh, and, I, and I'm just curious, was it this like, that religion really is fundamental to people's identity and you're not going to persuade them with evidence? Or what was the insight or the shift that you had?
0: Well, I mean, you know, and personally it was the experience I mean, if not holistically, it uh, it was a uh, post—what would you call it? Uh, A a post-religious realism (laughs) Mm. is what what I would call myself. Interesting. uh, Or or taking part in. What do you mean Um, by that,
1: David? Unpack that. I mean,
0: for a lot of people, deconversion might mean that they would consider themselves an atheist or something like that, and I would call myself. uh, a person who participates in the reality of the religious institution appreciates the beauty of it mm. uh, for what it is, though I personally can't do anything that would be associated with supernaturalism, mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing, uh, whether it be a lucky sports team or ghost hunting or <laughs> bringing up another conversation Chad and I have had before. <laughs> That's, That's
1: right. right. That was a fun one. <laughs>
2: 2007. Or,
0: uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or anything, like whether, you know, that, that people believe they have soulmates or lucky times, or uh, uh, I think there's a lot of supernaturalism in politics. That's not getting to your question, or your question was, you know, how did I go from the idea uh, of Foucault, who, for the listeners, Foucault is just associated with, with the fact that he would say everything is socially constructed. Uh, he and this entire movement of postmodernity argued that uh, there is no mountain. There's only the social construction of a mountain. There is no uh, uh, sexual orientation that you're born with. There's only the social construction of your sexual orientation. And um, that was very influential and and still is to some degree. We really do socially construct a lot of stuff in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, it completely ignored uh, the fact that we have biologically evolved behaviors. If we didn't, we'd be the only species on Earth that doesn't. And so the brain uh, is not a blank slate. It's, it's wired with instincts. You don't have to teach 90% of teenage boys to be attracted to breath. It's going to happen. It's, <laughs> they, it's not being socially constructed. It's, it's uh, they're
2: just the mammary part. glands.
0: <laughs> they're not oh. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> for the average boy. And this is, you know, we're talking about a 90%. We could get into sexual orientation later, but, um, uh, the idea is that you're wired with a natural propensity and, and you could say, why aren't we attracted Foucault would have argued that society teaches us to be attracted to breasts and not to elbows. Mm-hmm. But evolutionary biology would say that's ridiculous. Mm. And uh, uh, the breast is associated with nursing babies and thus uh, boys are obsessed with healthy looking females that can nurse babies. They never consciously think that, mm-hmm. um, but they are, uh, their bodies are, Fill that because it's wired and it goes straight to the brain. I mean, it is part of the brain, and the brain craves that. And you know, and we can look at other sexual strategies and things. But that evolutionary biology uh, was a big switch for me. Uh, oh. It started with one book. It was a uh, Pascal Boyer. It looks like you would pronounce it Boyer, and his book was called Religion Explained. It came out in 2001 and introduced me to evolutionary, for him, anthropology but also biology. And that was a a huge change for me and a big switch.
1: Where does mysticism, mystery fit in? Or does it not have a place in your... Well,
0: there's a a fun party trick. I still have this discussion in religious studies departments. A lot Mm -hmm. of the professors uh, uh, at the American Academy of Religion will commonly talk about applied spirituality or concepts of spirit or mystical experiences. And then my fun party trick is, uh, prove to me you have a spirit or soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most people want to think they have a mystical self or a mystical side or, or some sense of spirit. And, um, uh, you know, and that's where I go, uh, I pull a, a comment of where's the evidence for that in any way. So
2: the scientific it, evidence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's a, it's a real big tension right now that, that, most people experience themselves as having a sense of a spiritual self or a, and and i'm going to overlap the words because they're commonly overlapped in everyday language for the sense of the mystical side of our lives and it gives us the the experience of transcendence that time or it lifts us out of chrono, you know of of the limits of normal chronological experience um and i'm not saying you can't have it as a mystical experience you can you can meditate for a long time in tibetan buddhism or you can take a mushroom and both of them are going to do almost exactly the same thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and um <laughs> and so those experiences yeah. are very real yeah and um uh, but the fact that it's commonly interpreted as having a spirit uh is to me um, you know something that latents it or ladens it with uh uh, supernaturalism that doesn't have any empirical evidence. Um, oh, so is that it, a conversation that, starter yeah. or stopper <laughs> at these
2: cocktail parties?
0: It's a stopper in that <laughs> when you, when you tell someone, I mean, I, I do it in the, in the notion of just like Darren Jordan said uh, 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 to me, you know, Jesus was a bad Jew. I teach a class on death and afterlife. And most of the questions have to do is what happens to our soul. And then I tell them fun, fun fact there. You don't have one. Ooh. Ouch.
3: <laughs> so and then, uh, and the
0: point, of course, is it is it like uh, you got to believe me? The point is to provoke them to even question the very question they're asking, which is, "Well, I assumed I'm a dualist; I have a soul and a body." Mm. And uh, you know, when you come at someone and say, <laughs> "You know, prove prove that to me." Yeah, but I think <laughs> also difficult.
1: what you're saying too about identity is that you can have an identity that's been constructed that does, whether it's provable or not, that that needs uh, to believe or needs to believe in something supernatural or oh, something yeah. mystical. Is that right?
0: I It is, and I would argue that um, pulling the rug out from underneath religion or supernatural beliefs or soul beliefs uh, isn't very helpful. And uh, it's, it's not something that... Uh, is often readily received with comfort, and I do think religion is quite functional. I mean, I, I yeah. really believe it is. For a lot of people to have good psychological health is to have some sense of supernatural belief system. We're almost all of us inclined to have them, and uh, and they tend to work pretty well for a lot of people.
1: Mm-hmm. It's fun, like I've, you know, and you know a lot of my history, my story, David, but like having yeah. kind of gone through my own kind of crisis of belief and really deconstructing. I mean, that's when we were in Atlanta with you guys and had lots of conversations around what's true, what's not, like how do you know? Um, and then, you know, being here in Chattanooga and kind of, I think, wrestling, continuing to wrestle most of my adult life with these questions. And then the last couple years have kind of reintegrated um, this kind of these these questions and this learning more into just my everyday life. And I told someone recently, um, I always thought I was a bad Christian. I just now I know I'm just Episcopal. Like, <laughs> like I want to have a community of people around me that talk about this stuff. Um, I'm, I, I'm a bad evangelical, is what I said. Um, so, so I, I still love having these conversations and not knowing the answers and like being really okay with the mystery. You're you're a little bit more have have some decisiveness about because of what you studied and yeah. you know. <laughs> but I love that I don't know a lot, you know, and I think that um, there's just, you know, a lot of beauty around that when you can sit with people and have these conversations and not have to be certain, you know.
0: Right, right. Or dismissive. And I mean that's the problem or defensive. Can sometimes, yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: And uh, that's where we can come up with some difficulties of good dinner conversations. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. It gets tricky.
2: Yeah. But one of the, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the big self podcast is because, um, you know, being a big self is more than than you know just being even a whole or a centered person uh, while you know also aspiring to be ambitious or aud- audacious a lot of our tribe and the identity we're working uh, to create is is about um, you know is about, being whole and centered and just making an impact in, in, in the field that they, they work in. So, um, you know, while you were clearly ambitious in your academic uh, pursuits and the places you've studied, uh, you, you seem to genuinely enjoy being a teacher I know you've got some other things that you're working on now we'll get to, but your students rave about you on RateMyProfessor.com, which Ooh, we know got? it's an authoritative site. Uh, no, but seriously, it is. How, how do you uh, strive to make an impact in, in your students' lives through teaching? Besides, you know, pulling the carpet out from underneath their beliefs. <laughs>
0: I mean, part of it is fun and, and to be really respectful. I mean, I have yeah. many conservative students, you know, and those questions I start with, but of course I also come back around and at times help them respond to my own questions. Yes, um, yes you do. The, 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 yeah, the center idea is, um, um, it's just, I love taking students on this journey of questioning. I mean, uh, the, the, the subject I get to teach on is probably one of the easiest subjects any college professor could get. And the reason is most people have intensely held religious belief systems that are largely unexamined. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and that's how religion tends to work uh, pretty well for a lot of people. Uh, that was part of what my dissertation was about, is that, is that we don't do a lot of reflective or self-critical work on religiosity. And we just kind of want it to just be there off to the side. It has a big impact on us, but we don't really question it. And we don't spend a lot of time investigating all sorts of uh, branches off of it. Um, So for the students, they'll hear something, you know, just super simple. Like there's no afterlife in the Old Testament. And the the construction of Islam, which, which was largely the generation after the life of Muhammad, uh there's there's different things that are sort of shocking in every religion to the practitioners of it. And mm-hmm. I get to uh to both teach about this but also teach them an affinity for the subject that this is a really powerful belief system that a lot of people have and to be able to show up every you know, every time I come to teach in class is is it's just fun. And so for me that's part of it and also just uh I enjoy, you know, being around uh Young adults are uh, always had this kind of energy with them, and that part of the classroom experience is really fun. Uh, it's a, a real passion. I think I'm lucky that I get to look forward to doing what I do uh, two or three days a week mm-hmm.
1: teaching. Yeah, and you do. I mean, the work you're doing is I love what you just said helping people examine what is typically yeah. pretty unexamined. And you do that. Right. Uh, there's a gentleness that I know you do that with. You know that you've you've got a strength and a power with your questions, but you help people kind of walk through more questions. Yeah, no one
0: wants to, to actually traumatize anyone. Though no, it right. may happen on yes. occasion. Yeah. But I, I, really, you know, I'm I'm empathetic, so I care about exactly, them. and yeah. um, uh, and so it's, it it makes it for a lively class period just about every time. <laughs>
1: I bet. I want to be one of your students. Uh, Let
0: me
1: (laughs) let me ask you this. So since the time we've left Atlanta, you all have had three babies. So you are speaking of biology. You are a father of three. Um, And I think, yeah, it makes natural sense that you would start thinking about your work applying to fathering and so i want you to talk a little bit about how these three kids have impacted you your beliefs your work um, and a little bit about what you're doing right now with around fathering
0: well uh this was a a journey we had uh had wanted children forever and um uh, and when it finally happened and we were able to not only have a small family but a large family It was, in some ways, everything I think we both thought it would be, which is crazy. (laughs) Uh, We're both just in love with them. Uh, We have no time left for anything. I could barely manage myself uh, with poor organization before I had kids. (laughs) And (laughs) and it only
1: makes it worse.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, I've learned how to really uh, do things. Uh, some people are going to laugh at this, but on time and pay, you know, make sure I pay my bills and, yep. and keep the house clean and organize everything. You end up with no extra time left. So time management has been a real life lesson for me for the last few years, uh, especially when the third was born. That was a whole nother mm. level.
1: As Chad says, you when you have the third one, you what do you go from one, oh, one to one to?
2: One on one to playing defense. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or zone, one zone, one-on-one to plain zone. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> I haven't said it in a while. So, I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with them. And and you also get a lot of things that kicked in with them with fathering. Uh, and, and part of it is normative to say what I'm about to say, but part of it is uh, uh, problematic in our discussions of gender and, and ethics. But males tend to feel more burden to provide and uh, it's been that way for you know millennia and mm-hmm. so having them made me rethink the sort of lackadaisical idealistic approach I had to the academy which was I'm just going to ask my questions and write about them. I didn't really have a strategic plan for how am I going to make sure I earn a huge living
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, after having these three kids. And, uh, and so that was one of the big things that changed with fathering is realizing this is extremely expensive. And, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if I want to keep up any semblances of the social economic class that I think that I'm a part of, uh, I've got to change my economic future. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, I'm a, I'm a lecturer at Georgia state in any kind of uh, where, which means I'm not on tenure track and any uh a majority of universities now are moving to non-tenure track positions mm-hmm. and it and the way the academy pays is that if you want what you would get in a tech startup or something like that you need to go into administration and uh where the salaries are well into the six figures and um, uh, that doesn't happen otherwise and if you're on not on a tenure track you usually don't move into administration and so part of it's yeah. just uh, part of this whole experience has been an economic reality for me Yeah, and yeah. That's, that, that may set you up for, to ask me when I'm about to. What yeah. I'm doing right yeah,
2: that's true. Why don't you
1: tell us how <laughs> yeah. what you've done with that? David?
2: All right. Well, you like to do a lot of things with your hands. I know that. And, uh, you know, you're, I think yeah. you're doing something from landscaping to construction. What, what's, what's the, what's this latest project you got going on?
0: I am an obsessed do it yourselfer and, um, and building on, Two things that I've kind of wondered how I got myself to where I'm at right now, and one part of the factor is when I was a boy, I would sit around and draw house plans, but never pursued architecture later in college because of the whole religion thing. And uh, and then ever since I've been married with Amy and uh, uh, and have our house, I've been interested in uh, large scale design, landscape architecture, mm-hmm. uh, exterior things, not really small interior design, but large movements like where to put walls and stuff like that. I got into shiplap before uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines did. <laughs> you <laughs> oh, were I shiplapping
1: before shiplapping was cool?
0: <laughs> I was. And, uh, and, and I decided, uh, I was looking, when my third was born, I decided that I needed to make a game plan. And I thought I might go out and try and flip a house. I ended up flipping our own house and uh, doing quite well with it and using that money then uh, to buy a lot and and then to at least have the money for the first half of the next build and so I'm doing a new build right now and I am currently an expert in sewer lateral lines <laughs> Wow nice. demolition nice uh, uh, landscape and I'm becoming an expert in concrete at least how to manage a crew on concrete and it's a big process i'm both investor gc and just person on the ground with this build and so but that's what i'm doing i'm building a home right now to try and build up equity we'll be moving into it um but then the idea then is to leverage that equity and then keep building it's fun it's a very different line of work
1: yeah it's the, yeah. physical to go from yeah, yeah, the cerebral is. to the physical so how did you like tell what's the the process to get to that spot where you're like this is what I want to try how did you did you experiment with things did you guys just talk about it, it sounds like you were uh, already interested from a kid it was fun like what was what, what was, was your the leaping thing?
0: off
2: point
1: or oh, the process to get uh, to the uh, leaping off point
0: yeah I don't know I, I don't know what the point was <laughs> yeah I had a bathroom I thought had gone out of style and i ripped it out, put it in heating, heated tile flooring and did all this other kind of stuff. And it, it's not unlike, to be honest, the Fixer Upper show before it was there. I was ripping stuff out. And I had honestly watched uh, a romantic comedy, Something's Gotta Give. And Amy and I had uh, traveled to New England, and it a few times. I loved the architecture up there. I loved it, some interior design. And I liked the way that subway tile was used in uh, parts of, I think, in that movie. And, uh, and so I started experimenting with subway tile and trying to redesign things around my house, ended up also going with shiplap and just fell in love with some components of that design. Mm. And, and uh, so I, I did a bathroom and then before I knew it, I ripped out walls, added walls, put in trance and windows uh, and uh, all sorts of stuff in my own home and realized, and then built a playhouse uh, for my kids that uh, that was raved about. And... And um, and so it was those experiences combined all together were, were major factors.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I've decided, and let, let me try and just sell the home out from under my family. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be homeless Leverage that. Day. Yeah. It's pretty stressful. I mean, when you, you know, get rid of a perfectly good home uh, and use all that, I mean, this has been, a, it's stressful to, uh, you have a lot of people that say, you can't do it. What are you crazy? I mean, the, the negativity about uh, whether someone can build their own home is, is really overwhelming. Why? And uh, so it's, it's, um, it is difficult. Um, so people are just requires, like
1: you are not going to be able to do this.
0: Yeah, you won't be able to figure it out. You'll make you'll mess up. Uh, hmm. uh, you know, and you hear that, and then part of it. I mean, builders also won't share what they know. I found out.
3: Oh, pretty uh, territorial.
0: I've, I've, oh, it's very. And and hmm. so far, what I can tell why it is is because it's not rocket science. Uh, it's, um, uh, it, you can figure it out. Hmm. You just have to, you know, think through everything quite a bit and play around with a few things and uh, yeah. and get every other kind of resource. And I find myself on other build sites all the time, but it's been, the, the part that people keep telling you where you're, you won't be able to do it is, um, was stressful. And we're just now, we've just had uh, our footers poured and the slab poured. I have framers ready for Monday. And so a lot of the activity of it is actually happening right now, which mm. uh, kind of changes the entire experience of it, makes wow. it feel much better.
1: Yeah, you yeah. see it, like the progress.
2: Literally building the foundation.
0: Yeah, so the, yeah, the foundation was poured last week. It, uh, uh, and negotiating with permits and things like that with the city of Atlanta is another big part. It, there's tons of operating things that I'm not used to. I, I didn't develop a skill set of program managing. Or, you know, of, I bet of, you have one now. Uh, I have, I, you follow up with people a lot. You, yeah. You, you check in, you double communicate, you, uh, <laughs> you're you running right. numbers all the time. And I'm dealing with, literally, dealing with maybe 10 to 15 crews right now in different parts wow. of the process. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, I want, it's very yeah. Well, go ahead.
1: Well, I just want to I want to highlight something that you're saying that I want to make sure people hear because we come here we come to our big work in so many different ways. Some people kind of know it and they just need the courage to do it. Some people are like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, I think you know what what you've done is you've followed the curiosity. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert says, uh, to be curious, to follow your curiosity. So if there's something that's, that was, it was just interesting to you. It was fun. You were fell in love with architecture and like, how do I replicate this? And so I think that, um, to me, like that unfolding process is what can be, so it's, it's not, um, we don't, when we're doing it, we don't think it's big, but it leads to something really important and something very purposeful. Um, And it was also a reality thing for you. You know, people get, you know, it's not an idealistic thing just to kind of follow your passion. There is this like, how do I make this work? What is the strategy? How do I make more money? And so the fact that you've figured out how to combine something you're interested in and curious about with a way that you can like kind of leverage your, the economic value of it, I think is really awesome. And I just want people to make sure that they heard that.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I, um, if anybody wants to contact me, I can give them the specific numbers, but it's yeah. definitely possible to make, you know, from one build, if you're interested in building, you can, in about one year, uh, uh, earn, you know, twice the income that a professor will earn. Wow. <laughs> well, is it, yeah. um, is
2: it a business that you're wanting to spread the word about? Are you looking for like clients or are you, is it one like build at a time right now?
0: Oh, definitely one at, one bill at a time. But okay. I can, uh, the experience you get, I, I call the company Kirk and Croft. It's uh, um, It stands for church. Kirk is church in Scottish, and I live in Kirkwood, the neighborhood.
3: Okay. And,
0: uh, and Croft is farm in Scotland. And so Kirk and Croft is what I named it. And I'm hoping to do flips or new builds afterwards. And so I want to make sure I can prove both to myself and mm-hmm. to anyone who wants to look that I can. I flipped one home and now I'm about to build one. And that, at that point is when I'm hoping to, you know, really get everything started with mm. it.
2: Man, I hope That's you're so documenting exciting. the experience because uh, I want to see the before and the after.
0: Yeah, I've got some videos. I haven't been great with social media. I've kind of been swamped.
2: Yeah, I, it <laughs> sounds a,
0: like I've, it. I've got an Instagram called Kirk and Cross that uh, I've just started putting some stuff on.
2: Well, so, yeah, cool. well, that's, that's fantastic. Well, so how, I was going, I mean, I know you also like to hike and bike and that that probably rejuvenates you, but I can't imagine how you fit that in to your normal schedule, especially being in kind of downtown, uh, Atlanta. But like, let me ask you this from a big self kind of perspective is how do you stay balanced? Do, do you, do you,
1: uh, stay, do balanced? you stay balanced?
0: <laughs> no. Okay. So Yeah. <laughs> um, the experience before uh, trying to build this house was I was still riding. I'd ride to work. I wrote a lot, and you know, for the fun story of, is that I, I mean, I was obsessed with this. I was a, a state champion way back in the '80s in cycling, and went to the Olympic training center. And cycling has always been a major part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, got to race with Lance when we were teenagers. Yeah, and I kept riding quite a bit. And Chad, you know, you and I, you reinvigorated that when we started mountain biking again yeah. together. And um, uh, and that was a component of me getting back into racing uh, uh, for ten years, where I was just obsessed. I was riding four or five hundred miles a week. Uh, was becoming a very competitive, very fit racer, and. Um, uh, and then my children were born. I stopped racing, but kept running. <laughs> and I'd have to say, um, uh, I think, as with any entrepreneurship, uh, this build. Since I'm trying to save money, I'm not hiring anyone else to manage the site or mm-hmm. anything. So I'm doing two or three jobs. It's uh, in addition to my teaching at work, which is probably 30 hours a week. This is probably 50 to 70 a week. God, I'm I was I I was there yesterday. I was on the site at five in the morning yesterday. And I was out there at seven in the morning today up until right before our interview. And, um, you know, and I'll be working on it again right after the interview for the rest of the day, uh, doing all sorts of things with window orders and things like that. So it's, I don't anticipate that always being the case. So Um, you're in a season. Yeah, it's a season of hard work. Uh, My wife and I talked about it. That what what this would look like, and uh, she's quite supportive. But you know, it means more of the childcare is falling on her, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and so it's uh, and the kids know I'm. Uh, we happen to live just three houses down from where I'm building, so we're renting a home right now, and so they know I'm right there, and they can see me actually mm-hmm. out there moving dirt around, <laughs> and working with crews. <laughs> I love it, and uh, yeah, and so it's it's an interesting experience for them, but it's definitely not balanced. I mean, this is probably a life uh, something I think will last another three or four months for me. That is, that is probably hitting 80 to 90 hours a week total of work. You, Definitely seven days a week. Do
1: you fear burnout, David? Or do you feel like you've kind uh, of got it managed and you, and, and it's, you see a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, um, I think burnout is always a possibility. That's sure, of course. And uh, I, I think there's no way anyone could do this level of work for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would be healthy or possible. And uh, uh, and part of it would be I, I think I have the skills just to acknowledge if it got overwhelming and I felt like I was going to have a panic attack or something like that. Mm-hmm. I would just need to take a break and yeah. stop the cruise from coming and uh, and chill yeah. <laughs> for a, for some time.
1: Yeah. Well, I I don't want you to get off without talking for just a second about the political climate of our country oh, right yeah.
0: now. Um, I have strong opinions.
1: <laughs> I, no, really, shocking. So, but but with your identity theory, the work you've done, for, I mean, for over twenty years, moral injury. Have you you've looked at that? I want you just to talk for just a brief minute about what you think is happening with, in our country right now, around identity, political identity, around um, this kind of the vitriol that's happening, the digging of the heels, kind of everywhere. And like, I'm just really curious how you're talking about that with your students. How are you framing that up in your own head? Um, Yeah. Just that.
0: Um, There's no way to do it shortly. I know, I know.
2: uh,
0: I'll throw out a few things. Um, I mean, I'm going to name a lot of psychological things, but I think it would be incorrect to say what's happening in the political climate in America without looking at this is happening in a lot of the Western world. Yeah. Um, Fair.
1: Yeah.
0: I think, yeah. So I think we're not special, although our leader may be exceptionally out there, even compared to a lot lot of other far far right people.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Um. Uh. But w- and and I think also the math is like what would be the pattern then of why so many Western states, which are largely white, have all turned to far right leaders, or at least they've far right has become a component of it. And I think part of that is immigration and fear of cultural diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to feel comfortable in their cultures, and uh, and so for so long, it's, I, I travel a good bit to Europe and study abroad trips. And for so long, you know, the, the mantra of Europe as they perceive themselves is uh, so much more progressive than America and so much better. <laughs> and then um, uh, and then the moment you get just a small wave of migration, the, many of their cultures turn to far right leaders. Mm. Um, when you go to France and you think, oh, this is a progressive liberal state, but it's 95 percent white. Yeah. And they have struggled as that Germany and Poland with small amounts of migration from people of color, they're bringing in different cultures, that uh, it kind of shows you how readily unaccepting or difficult it is to, to envision that your culture could change so quickly. Mm. So those are some comments, but the, the bigger ones I would say is is back to evolutionary psychology, which is um, we're tribal beings.
1: I was just uh, going to say that.
0: Yep. Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we do out-group, in-group really quickly. You don't need to teach children to form groups they're going to do it you do have to socially construct how they break down values um lighter skin and darker skin that has to be taught but being groupish doesn't
3: mm.
0: that comes naturally and so if everybody had the skin color is easy to see so we're, we're looking that, to
1: group but then we learn yeah. evolutionarily but then we learn to group by skin color
0: Right. And it could have been just the opposite. It could have been that uh, people of color, so darker skinned people, would have been the ones that were privileged and that they would have been prejudiced against white skinned people. It, it is that arbitrary. Mm-hmm. If everyone had the same skin color, then we would have been groupish by eye color right. <laughs> or nose size, right? Uh, gotcha. hair color. We, we'll find something to be groupish by that's visual. And uh, we've, we've long done it. Uh, most cultures had similar physical appearances we weren't wired to interact with people that were significantly different than us. Cause try, you know, we, we usually look mostly like the other groups except for a few smaller changes. And so these, so now that we're a world culture that interacts with each other with, you know, with very diverse physical appearances, um, that is difficult mm. for the brain to not form groupishness, to not say to not look and then to fulfill our prejudices. You know, if we, we were taught a belief system, we may see counter evidence that this group is bad. But let's say we're taught one group is bad and we see counter evidence of all these other people that are in that group doing great things. And the moment we see one of them doing something bad, we didn't say the whole group is. Mm-hmm. That's how inefficient. And yet that is the kind of brains we have.
3: Yeah.
0: So in-group, out-group, tribal is one of the big areas. The other one is cognitive dissonance. Um, uh, if I say something and have it recorded and then tell everyone six hours later I actually didn't say it and I'm standing in front of a plane with a group of cheering people <laughs> and they all go, yeah, you didn't say it. that's cognitive dissonance. That's your ability to just cope and just not accept reality. And, and I'm obviously speaking about Trump saying something, then saying he didn't say it and just and just being met with counter evidence and how the followers, for that uh, uh, can just accept basically non-reality. Yeah,
1: well, and then a lot of we, rationalization has to happen as a result of that. I don't think... Uh, you don't think so? I
0: mean, I, would, I wouldn't want to use the word rationalization. <laughs> <I> <laughs> what
1: would, word what exactly. would you call it? So if I'm in cognitive dissonance, we have to do something to reconcile that.
0: What would you well, call it? Well, you can it? see it on some of the comedy central interviews where you go, uh, if he was guilty, he would just he wouldn't... He would try to hide some stuff. Well, he is hiding stuff. Well, it doesn't really matter. That's that. You know, <laughs> yeah. other side. Then it, it's not necessarily a process of rationalization. It's just acceptance and loyalty to the tribal identity group. And and when you're met with with strong evidence that your belief system is wrong, you just ignore it. And I don't know if that needs to be rationalization. You literally can ignore it. in mm-hmm. uh, dissociation, I mean, maybe. The Bernie Bros, Right. I mean, yeah, We you, you may know components of like, yeah, I think association would definitely be a component of that. Um, but the Bernie bros and some others that feel very strong opinions about some of their candidates, I think use a healthy amount of cognitive dissonance. Yep. Uh, and cognitive dissonance isn't always bad. I mean, uh, it helps us stay with our partners at times. I think it has helped my wife stay with me. <laughs> 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 it helps us. You know, was just like this is a good person, and when you see evidence otherwise, you just keep saying this is a good person.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to go with it. We're just going to well, keep going with it, as yeah. we knew this it's would fun. be
2: a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation. Oh, I'm cutting you off, huh, Shelly? I, I
1: no, I, I wanted to I, let David finish what was his thoughts.
0: It's, it's, it's cognitive dissonance isn't necessarily bad. It's functional and it's productive at times. We evolved to do it pretty well, and. Um, uh, and yet it can be obviously, for some of us who have strong political opinions, very harmful when we're trying to make good moral political decisions for our future.
1: Well, so and when we're trying to, to create policy, <laughs> when you create policy based oh, yeah. on cognitive dissonance or un- non-truths, I think it gets real complicated yeah, real fast.
0: Right. right. There's the evidence that said, uh, the Latino immigration uh, are, was bringing a group of people that weren't the worst were actually better and, and had less crime than the actual residents of America. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet we made a policy and are building a wall that basically ignores reality mm-hmm. and ignores facts. And uh, and that's cognitive dissonance. And so it can also of course have harm. And you know, that's not just dissonance. that's and tribal loyalty, identity.
2: Yeah. Well, you probably don't have time to be reading or anything, but are you? Uh, are you? <laughs> no, your
1: free time, David. Is
2: uh, are you listening to a podcast, or is there any any book making an impression on you right now?
0: It's by several authors, but it's uh, the 2016 presidential campaign, the battle for the meaning of America. So mostly, mostly the way through that book, but that uh, lead author is John Side. Mm, on that okay.
1: One. Very cool. And
0: my podcast, I'm listening to. I don't want some of the listeners out there to judge me, but I listened to Sam Harris, Making Sense. And uh, he's a little bit controversial because he says some statements that can definitely be interpreted as Islamophobia. And uh, uh, and I do say I would agree for some people that some of his early statements on some religions were problematic. But Sam Harris's podcast and honestly, a lot of his writings and commentary uh, I find to be invigorating and really helpful i'm actually listening to them while i'm on the work site okay
1: well and that's what i would do not the reading i think would be difficult to find time but putting earbuds in with a good podcast and a a wheelbarrow of dirt there you go that's all you need
0: (laughs) it's what's happening
1: yeah um let me ask you this we have a couple more questions for you what does your if if you have one what does your morning routine look like
0: it uh, depends on the day. If it's not, go out and move mud at 5 a.m. for a concrete crew. Um, uh, I will sometimes manage. I mean, I think it's obvious to everyone. I don't know if you've ever talked about ADD. I have massive amounts of of uh, prefrontal cortex non-filtering. <laughs> so, uh,
1: That's the best definition so I've ever
2: heard. <laughs> prefrontal cortex non-filtering.
0: I'm That's, using uh, that. You know, that's yeah, it's, it's what's happening in my brain. I'm 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 taking in fifteen things at, at at all times. Yep. And and at times not focusing on any of them. And so uh I'll get up on mornings I can. I did it this morning, uh before I went out to the work site. Um uh, I sit down with a cup of coffee maybe before the children are awake, so about five thirty, get out the iPad and make a list and mm-hmm. um uh and when I'm doing better than not, I'll read uh, some tweets from the Dalai Lama, or I'll do some of the reading here. I will try to spend about mm. 30 minutes reading uh, after I've made my list. My list makes me feel comfortable.
3: Mm-hmm. I know
0: what I have that day. And yep. um, my my advice to anyone with ADD is to, as an adult, is to make lists. And if you lost your list, make another one. Have them everywhere. Mm. <laughs> I
1: love that the list will save you. Yeah. yeah.
2: And to conclude, is our we ask uh, all of our uh, podcast guests, what does big self mean to you?
0: That might fit perfectly with what I'm doing. It's trying to be honest and practical at times about mm-hmm. the life's urgencies that have been placed upon me, you know, uh, or, or that I've chosen, you know, to have a big family. Yeah, and uh, and trying to be okay with where I'm at. I, I'm, you know, you you describe me very uh, kindly uh, of going to and, and uh, good universities and such, but the whole idea is that you would end up as a tenure-track professor, and I have not. I've ended up as a permanent senior lecturer, which isn't, in some ways, all that different, but uh, realizing also that, that whole trajectory was never going to, in some ways, provide what I thought it would. I've, uh, I think the big self is mm. trying to be honest with those, being okay with the fact of where you're at uh, not feeling regret or anything and also trying to constantly make a list or a plan uh, for what would be possible to change and to make it practical and realistic. And so for me, that was building a homes and maybe trying to see, uh, try my hand at renovation and making sure I enjoy it. Wow. And that's, that's been kind of what I'm doing. I wanted to make sure I enjoy it. If I don't enjoy it, uh, you know, I have that one trick pony of uh, I take standardized tests. Well, <laughs> so I'll go, to school. <laughs> go back to school the there's a plan 50, seat here i'm gonna go back to school
2: <laughs> lifelong learner
0: oh
1: this has been so fun david i just love you thanks. i love you guys man i want to see y'all soon
0: well thanks yeah we, we uh, have said let's go to chattanooga today you know we've said that a few times but well, so we really enjoyed we got together at Greaton Beach a few months ago. I know. Yeah. So back much in the fun. summer. That was yeah, good. Great
3: fun.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, so much for taking time out of your obviously very busy Seriously, season of life yeah. uh, <laughs> to uh, to be on the Big Self podcast, man. Yeah, this is a great contribution. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on twitter and we are also at the big self society on medium where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity we'd love to hear from you what show made an impact on your thinking your habits your decision making or anything else and anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show let us know